Homeboy is the front porch of the world that we all long for. Enemies, rivals, African-American, Latino, sisters, brothers. We want to be what the world is invited to ultimately become. You are listening to Change Lab, conversations on transformation and creativity. I'm Lauren Buckman, president of Art Center College of Design. For the past 30 years, Father Greg Boyle has made it his mission to address the plight of those affected by the epidemic of gang violence. As the founder of Homeboy Industries, the largest gang intervention rehab and reentry program in the world, Father Greg has been instrumental in turning the tide on violent crime in Los Angeles and beyond. The secret to his success begins with reframing the question typically posed by well-meaning social servants. Instead of asking, how can we serve gang members, Father Greg asks, how can we stand with them in awe of the pain they carry and allow ourselves to be reached by them? Our interview itself took place on location at Homeboy. As much as I had absorbed through my reading, I was still unprepared for the joyfully kinetic energy coursing through its bustling, light-filled headquarters. The place was teeming with men and women of all ages engaged in both casual conversations and impassioned heart-to-hearts. At the center of the communal action was Father Greg's glass-encased office, which he seems to occupy only occasionally. To find Father Greg, search the crowd. He'll be there, doling out bear hugs and giving his undivided attention to anyone in need. Father Greg, a Jesuit priest, exhibits a striking generosity of spirit and a beautiful soul. But I couldn't help seeing him as an artist as well, and I was determined to explore with him the creative nature of his work. Given his modesty, he initially resisted the notion. But by the end of our exchange, a number of striking parallels emerged. Please enjoy my conversation with Father Gregory Boyle. If you wouldn't mind, not all our listeners are familiar with you or with Homeboy Industries, if you could just give us a bit of the history and a description of what this is, that would be a good place to start. Well, my name is Greg Boyle, and I'm the founder of this place, Homeboy Industries. It's the largest gang intervention, rehab, and reentry program on the planet Earth. So 15,000 folks a year walk through our doors trying to reimagine their lives and redirect them. And so... Um, Healing is kind of the centerpiece, so we have an 18-month training program, and so we try to uh, help them come to terms with what was done to them and what they've done so that they can develop some reservoir of resilience and they can move beyond this place eventually. And what are the services that you offer that they participate in during this 18-month program? In the 18-month program, they, they receive therapy. There's case management. There are a lot of curricular offerings. Uh, we have nine social enterprises where they work and get trained and in a work environment. But the, the main thing they do is they, they work on themselves. And so the hope is to get them to a place where they can transform their pain so they don't have to transmit it anymore. You're a, a writer, and I've read your books, and you're a great speaker. And I'm interested in your own reflections 
yourself, on how you think about yourself as a creative individual. I don't self-identify that way. I don't really see myself as a writer. Though you you have written. I've written two books, but I, I still don't see myself that way. You know, even you mentioned that I speak or tell stories, so that makes sense to me. And so the writing is just I transcribe them on a page, you know. What do you imagine a writer feels like? I don't know. I mean, I, that, where that's where it's a vocation. Where I, I guess it's sort of an identifier. You know, I would never identify myself as as a writer because I, I feel sort of unworthy of that title, frankly. Fair enough, though you you write very beautifully. Yeah. Maybe to say it this way: Do you think about yourself in any way as involved in a creative pursuit? Is there something about the work that you do, the way you think, the way you engage in the world, the way you engage with people, that you would talk about as being creative have you ever thought of that yeah i don't really think in those terms in fact i find myself saying all the time well i'm not a very creative person you know i don't know if that's self-effacing or something but someone will come with some idea or, or try to find out how can we connect my corporation or my enterprise with what homeboy industries is doing and i i, I always know in those circumstances i always say well i'm not a very creative person so you see this place, you you make the connections, you know, because I, I don't design anything. You know, you just sort of respond, you know, what's next? Okay, what if we address that? What if we, I don't know, what if we had a way to just remove tattoos? What if we exposed gang members to this thing or to that class or to this way to cope or whatever it is? So it's it's not a kind of a long planned, designed, creative thing. Well, you've set the challenge well, because I'm going to prompt you, and we'll see whether or not, by the end of this conversation, you still feel the same way, because I see this all over the place, and I see this all over your life. So let's start, shall we? All right. One fundamental principle of any kind of artistic endeavor is that somehow it shifts our perspective. It makes us see something new. An artist will work with form. An artist will put something very familiar to us in a certain context, whatever method or means they use and it causes us to see anew to think again to take the familiar and see it in a different kind of context so as i'm thinking about homeboy industries and i'm thinking about your work i'm thinking that you've actually similarly reframed something really important you've asked a different kind of question which is what if we stand with these gang members what if we show them love what if we are in that exquisite mutuality you talk about instead of incarcerating them. And that begins to open up a way of seeing, and a way of engaging, and a way of bringing a humanity to this that is very different and allows us to engage anew. Does this resonate with you? Yeah, I, I think that's, that's quite good. A homie once said, uh, homeboy industries is the opposite of things, which I think is brilliant because, you know, I think homeboy wants to turn a lot of things on its head. It wants to turn the notion even of service. So people come here, they want to be of service. You know, service is the hallway that gets you to the ballroom. You want to get to the ballroom, which is the place of exquisite mutuality. So if a volunteer comes here thinking they're going to save, fix, rescue anybody, we would say, come back when when you don't think that way, you know. Mm-hmm. And the world would want to say, how do we reach gang members? And this place would say, can you allow yourself to be reached by gang members? So that's a whole different thing. During the afternoon I spent at Homeboy Industries, a man by the name of Osvaldo Michael Fernandez reached out to introduce himself. He asked about me and what I was doing there, 
and then generously shared his story. It is a harrowing tale of violence, but also one of hope and healing. We've woven some of his reflections into the episode to offer a very personal insight into the effects of Homeboy Industries on the people it serves. My full name is Osvaldo Michael Fernandez. I was 25 when I started this sentence, when I was convicted, um, and uh, I'm 46 now. So yeah, I just turned 46 in February. So yeah, it's, it's the 20 years that, that, that I had done uh, for this time. And I was incarcerated for a strong arm robbery. Basically, I paroled out of prison um, last year in August, August the 14th, I paroled. And uh, it was told by word of mouth in there by one of the other inmates in there. They had asked me basically a couple weeks before I was to parole, what are you going to do when you get out? You know what I mean? After doing 20 years in prison, you know, uh, I was like, you know what, I really don't know. You know what I mean? Because, you know, what is there out there for me? You know what I mean? Nobody's going to hire me. You know, three-time felon, you know, just got done doing 20 years. You know what I mean? Who's going to want to... I wouldn't want to hire myself, to be quite honest with you. So, basically, I told him, hey, I don't know what I'm going to do. And he said, well, you know what? When all else fails and you ain't got nothing else to do or go, Instead of coming back to prison, why don't you go check out Homeboy Industries? So from another inmate, another convict in prison, that's how I came about Homeboy Industries. Yeah. Since I've been out, I've not reoffended. I have not went back to prison. I have not went to jail or anything like that. And I think that's what's great about Homeboy Industries is what you put into Homeboys and what you apply is what you're going to get out. You know, we're, we're finishing the, the Lent season. And the word repent means to move beyond the mind you have. So this place is always encouraging that. Can you move beyond the mind you have? And I've seen it happen in 31 years as an organization. You know, you have the full-blown wholesale, across-the-board demonizing of the gang member and to tough on crime. And, and that's been turned on its head, you know. They moved to a different way of seeing how about smart on crime? How about human beings are involved? You know, how about these folks are noble, courageous, and close to God? Right. These yeah. are all different notions that wasn't true 31 years ago. I've also heard you say that you return people to themselves. Yeah. And the Hebrew word that's often translated as repentance is teshuva. Yeah. Which means a return. Yeah. And I thought that had a beautiful echo with yeah. how you talk about that and what yeah. that process is, because yeah. it is a reconnection. And everybody episode. gets returned, so it's not a question of, I return you to yourself, but that we are returned in each other's presence to ourselves, that together we're returned to our own unshakable goodness and dignity and nobility, right. you know? Right. So, so the Buddhists always say, you know, uh, oh, nobly born, remember who you really are. And so that's what we want to kind of remind people of, you know, who they really are, not who they can become one day. No, this is who you really are. And if you lived out of that place and if you inhabited that place, that would be meaningful. Reminds me of the Joseph Campbell idea that if you want to change the world, you change the metaphor, yeah. right? So it's very much of what you've done. Mm -hmm. And all this to me participates in that kind of, I was going to say jostle, but it's more of a shove or more of a shock to the system that mm -hmm. says, look at this anew think about it differently, reframe the question, enter in a different kind of way, be part of this, 
not as service, but as engagement, as standing yeah. with. But even, you know, there's there are certain things that we'll probably never return to again, which is a good thing. You know, it's kind of a tipping point. You know, there was hostility to this place our first 10 years, you know, death threats, bomb threats, hate mail, not from gang members, but from folks who had demonized the gang members. So it was a short hop to demonize me for helping them. I don't think we'll ever return to that place again. But you have to go through it. This is why people get so discouraged and don't, they're not in it for the long haul because they get so discouraged. But if you're faithful to an approach that you believe in and keep your head down, then it's, you know, it's all possible. And with homeboys right here, you know, you, you, you see homeboys, right? So you just think, oh, you know, Mexican or Hispanic, you know what I mean? But now nah, you come into these doors and you see blacks, you see whites, you see Asians, you know what I mean? You have Muslims, you have Christians, you have Catholics, you have Jews, you have everybody that's, you know, that's, uh, you know, their faiths and their beliefs and nobody's like cast down or like pushed to the side or shoved on this or that. I think that's what makes this place work. I mean, it's one, that's one of the great aspects of this place is that, you know, you're not judged on your, your, your color, your race, or your beliefs, or your religion. So, Father Greg, earlier you said you weren't a designer, but you act like a designer in certain ways. And one of the ways that you act like a designer is that you're interested in solving a problem, and that's kind of axiomatic with what designers do. I mean, people think designers make something look pretty, but in fact, they're trying to address a problem. And part of what we teach and part of the work of the design profession is to define the problem and to make sure that you're addressing the problem that you really need to address. Mm -hmm. And so once again, I think it's resonant with how I see your work, that you're not, you know, as you say, you're not dealing with the cough when there's lung cancer. You're trying to get to the source. You're trying to understand the real problem, and your work is to address that problem really in the most creative ways. Yeah, except that we live in an age where people self-congratulate around the issue of addressing things head on. And this is a place that tries to get underneath things. The principle here is that everything is about something else, that gang violence is about something else. In a lot of cities, they, they will say, we are going to address gang violence head on. And I always think, well, good luck with that, because it's not about the head on. You know, it's about all these underlying things like no kinship, no peace, no kinship, no justice, no kinship, no equality. If you want to address peace, justice, and equality head on, then you're not going to go very far, I don't think. But the minute you address kinship, which is something over here that undergirds all that stuff, exactly. then the byproduct of your efforts, which will be peace, justice, and equality. But we're kind of like that a lot with a lot of things, especially lately in the, uh, the tribal times in which we live. You know, things like... Um, hate crimes or, you know, white supremacists or racism. You know, you, you want to address these head on. A university, I just heard the other day, some university, started a course called Hate because they wanted to address hate head on. And I thought, wow, you know, you'd be better off if you, if you called the course Health, you know, where you started to examine despair and trauma and, and mental illness and recognize that you know, if you're addressing people who hate, it's a way of striking a high moral distance between you and them. It's a way of separating. It's a way of saying, that person who hates is not me. And none of that gets us very close to where we'd want to be. But if you kind of said, well, this is about health, and how do we help each other? And are you convinced that we all belong to each other? And will you stand against forgetting that? 
And then suddenly you're going to make progress. So again, you're asking a different kind of question. You're making us see it in a different kind of way. But also in the relationship to design and how we think about design, I think you are asking, what's the real problem here? Yeah. What's the real issue that we're trying to get That's at? Right. Not the head-on, not the what appears to be on the surface, but digging in underneath to understand, as you say, that undergirding problem. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And no treatment plan worth anything has ever been born of a diagnosis that was wrong-headed. So you want to make sure that mm. diagnosis is right, which is what you're saying. Mm. But that requires a kind of a sophistication to be able to say, oh, this isn't about what you think it's about. So when many, many people in cities, you know, want to kind of sit warring gangs down together and work it out just as you might with the Middle East or Northern Ireland, well, it's wrongheaded. It's a bad diagnosis. There is no conflict. There may be violence, but there's no conflict. It's not about anything that you can resolve at a negotiating table. You have to see it behavior as a language and, and then ask yourself, what language is this behavior speaking? But that's a question that we ask ourselves all the time. What do we think we're doing? You know, every day we ask that. What do we think we're doing when we suspend that guy? You know, what do we think we're doing when we drug test? We try to examine things in the light of, again, as you would say it, you know, creatively responding to, yeah, exactly. to what people come in here. Exactly. And can you talk just a little bit, because I find it so compelling, what the language is that you see in gang violence? The language is about despair that's dark and bleak and people can't find their way out of it. And the language is about damage and trauma where folks haven't yet seen their way clear to transform it. And it's the language of mental illness. And it's the language of those three things on a continuum of severity, you know, so some people are more despondent than traumatized. So that tells you what to do, especially since that reveals also the profile, the three profiles of kids who join gangs. Once you know that, then you try to infuse hope or you try to heal or you try to deliver mental health services. That's what you do in a hurry, you know, with kids who are coming up. But that's a good diagnosis. I would bet my whole life on that. It's good problem identification in the language of design. Yeah. For me, the purpose, what I see the purpose of the tour is to have the public have a greater understanding of what Homeboys does for the community. Um, I mean, you could come in here and you can be like, okay, I see he does that and does that. But having the tours, it gives you a greater inside depth into what that person that's doing the tours, what he or she has gone through to make the person that they are today. Like, I was against doing the tours because I don't like to talk a lot about myself. There's a lot of stuff in prison that I will not share. And it's just out of respect. You know what I mean? I respect every man that's in there. And in order for me to have that respect, I have to give that respect. At the same time, I can share and talk about how society has treated me since coming out of prison, the stigma that is put on me since coming out of prison, and what Homeboys is offering me to help me so that way I can be a productive citizen. You know, uh, I'll give you an example with, with the females. You know, when you're in prison, you're around nothing but men all day, 24-7. So after some years, you do tend to, I want to say, I have lost those communication skills. You know, you can't talk to a woman the same way you can talk to a man, you know what I mean, in prison, you know what I mean? And it's very important because when you come out here and you have in the workforce, you're going to have to be with your coworkers and your bosses are going to be women, in fact, you know what I mean? So you have to learn. That's something that's a skill that we take for granted, but I have to relearn that. So doing the tours, it's therapeutic in that way and it helps me in order to accomplish that and, and, and get back into those things. 
another part of the creative process, which I think you probably would relate to in the history of homeboy industries, is that there's always going to be failure. And we actually teach our students to understand failure as the way to pave their way to discovery, if not success. Yeah. And I wonder if you would explore with me a little bit how Homeboy Industries has confronted its failures and has evolved over the years that you've been working here. Well, I think the first thing is we're not attached to success or failure. You know, we, we try not to have any interest in either, truthfully. Again, a different language. Yeah, yeah. yeah you yeah. want to just, uh, again, I, Mother Teresa says we're not called to be successful, we're called to be faithful. And so when we put one foot in front of the next and keep our head to the ground, we're trying to stay faithful to the approach, to the methodology, to what we deem important, what should we be taking seriously. And then you don't have to care at all about how things turn out, which is the way it's supposed to be. Because success, if you want to go to the margins and make a difference, then it's about you. And it can't be. That keeps us stuck in fear and separation separation and paralysis and then you burn out this is why people burn out they their own narrative sometimes i i don't know i i just can't do it anymore i guess i'm just so compassionate i go no you're doing it wrong a and b it's all about you Hmm. of course you burned out but the minute it becomes about them then it's joyful it's delighting it's heartbreaking still but your job isn't to, you know, saving lives is for the Coast Guard. I, I'm not interested in it. So other places, you know, want to talk about outcomes. You know, somebody should do it. But I'm not that interested in it. If success is the, the engine that drives you, then you're going to only work with a population who will give you that result. Right. right. And it's crazy. Right. And I, I agree. And it's failing not so much to get to success, but to get to discovery. It's a process of learning. It's a process of knowing that everything you do doesn't just come out perfect, but that you yeah. you stumble and you make wrong turns and you find yourself in places that you didn't expect, but you sort of go back and you understand how to evolve. To and it. here, you know, we might use the language of relapse. It's necessary. It happens. It's almost unavoidable. All right, we had a momentary relapse here. Two steps forward, five steps backwards. Oh, well. You know, we try to underscore the the truth of no matter whatness. You know, you know, some guy who I was gonna take with me to to Boston, and he just flipped out with his lady, and cops had to be called, and so probation rescinded his permission to travel. Mm. So I can see my role in this. I'm, you know, we're texting each other, and I saw him finally today. And you want to because shame and disgrace is the principal suffering around here and so you want to alleviate that you don't want you want to say i'll never change my opinion about you yeah you screwed up you fought with your lady the cops were called all right let's work on this but i'm never gonna withdraw love never so i need you to know that because the shame and disgrace was so huge you know i could see him walk by and he wouldn't even look at in here for fear that I'd make eye contact. But you connected with him? You went oh, yeah, then I finally I, I saw him. And, and I, let him know he... Oh, yeah. Let, let him well, know I had a love, texted yeah. him this as well, but I wanted to say it to his face, you know, because he was just mortified. Couldn't yeah. face me. Right. I think this principle of failure to discovery, if you accept that, is true, too, of the arc of homeboy industries, is it not? I mean, from 
you know, the emphasis on jobs to the emphasis now on healing, on healing and the whole idea of, you know, what it means to uh, live in that place of mutuality, right? It's discovery and you learn things for the first 10 years, maybe. Go ahead, have shuttle diplomacy and uh, peace treaties and truces and ceasefires. And, and I don't regret that I did it. And I would just never do it again because I learned something. I, even the thing about the movement from being job-centric to healing was born of listening to gang members. And everybody would say, oh, that's a good thing to do, to knowing gang members, which was actually quite different. Because hmm. when we were listening, they were saying, if only we had jobs. No, you need rehab. But once you know somebody, you can make that call. So, you know, in the early days, nothing stops a bullet like a job. That's, that was our right. motto, and right. it's on our T-shirt. Right. But nobody around here believes that anymore, you mm-hmm. know, because we've grown, which is what we're supposed to do. We've evolved from that place that was born of listening to gang members to the current place, which is born of knowing them. And once you know them, you go, oh, okay. Yeah, they need, they need to be engaged fully in the work of healing. You don't want people who are a stranger to themselves to call shots, you know, to kind of say, here's here's what I think you ought to do. And does it make sense to you to call that a creative evolution? Yeah, sure, why not? <laughs> because it's I mean, a, I also it's think it's that you evolve and you don't want to stay stuck. And things are, have changed, you know. I mean, when we started in 1988, it was called Homeboy Industries. And now 31 years later, people call in and will be absolutely offended that we called it Homeboy Industries because it was just male. And people say, well, what about the women? So in 2006, maybe, I said, well, let's, let's have an industry that's for women. So now we have Homegirl Cafe, you know, but that's just because we live in a time where it's untenable to have an organization that that is, doesn't have a lot of... Have. Though it also comes from, as you said earlier, asking the questions. How are we doing? What are we doing? Yeah. How are we doing this? Yeah. What are we not listening to? And, and that's, that was a way that we kind of changed who we are a little bit. It, it never stands still. And that's true of any institution. I think of the church, you know, or even a notion of God. If that stuff doesn't evolve, if it doesn't change, then there's something wrong. You know, if you're still clinging to a notion that you had in the third grade, well, that's crazy. True, true. I think that's fundamentally about our creativity. And yeah. I think that gets linked in with our capacity to grow and our capacity to learn and our capacity to discover and the courage that we are able to summon. And that endeavor is fearless because the thing that keeps you where you are and insisting on it is just fear. It's fear-driven. Right. And the opposite of fear is love. You know, so if you can love being loving, then you're as an organization, you're moving. That's when you're creative because you're always, what do we need to do now? Does it still make sense to do that? You know, that kind of thing. Right. And, and they go, well, no, maybe it doesn't. So that's a great transition to this third element that I wanted to talk to you about. If the first one is changing the frame and the second one is really being able to evolve through a series of whatever failures or missteps or changes that happen. The third one has to do with courage. You know, I've often told students, though, actually you're making me rethink this a little bit, but I often told students that what we do is we, we teach courage. But that's such an important part of what it means to be a great artist or designer, to have the courage of your voice, to have the courage of understanding who you are, the courage to speak, the courage to tell your story, 
these all seem so resonant with what Homeboy's Industry is mm-hmm. all about. It seems so resonant with what you're about as well. Because in a way, you teach courage here. Yeah, I've never thought of it that way. I, you know, you want people to be fearless in the world. And again, you have to turn things on its head because the identity that people have as gang members is that they, they're fearless. And actually, it's the opposite. They're absolutely paralyzed by fear. And yet they have the narrative that says, you know, I'll fight anybody, anytime, mm. bring it on. And the odd thing is um, they don't fear death when they're gangbanging. And it's not because they're courageous or fearless. It's because they're despondent and they, they can't muster up anything really to care about. And you'll see them crying where they go, I was really afraid and sobbing. They never would have done that 15 years ago when they were gangbanging in, in, the, in the streets. But when it's like, I nearly lost my life or they shot at me and I thought this was it. And they'll tell you, I never used to be afraid of death. So which person is more courageous? You know, the one who is now for the first time afraid of dying or the one who mm-hmm. uh, wasn't? It's funny, I don't think of fear as necessarily being the opposite of courage. Of courage, right? I think yeah. the two of them can coexist in an interesting kind of way. And the other thing I'm interested in as well is that it's not just the participants of Homeboy, it's your volunteers, it's you, it's the courage to be vulnerable, it's the courage to be reached, it's the courage to exist in that exquisite mutuality, to quote you again. Mm -hmm. That requires a kind of courage, even as we are afraid. Yeah. It requires the courage to have it not be about you. You know, so a woman exactly. came once and said, I have to volunteer at Homeboy Industries. I said, why do you have to volunteer at Homeboy Industries? And she said, I believe I have a message these young people need to hear. You know, I thought, <laughs> yikes, please come back when you don't longer have this message. I don't want your damn message. Hmm. And so the world is in love with content, and we're trying to propose context which is really different. That's our secret sauce here. Because I think programs all over the country want to deliver services. And they end up being the DMV, you know, because they deliver all these services of whatever it is, you know, anger management or training, or if only we lifted you up to see character building or whatever it is. And for here, it's about the context of community of tenderness and kinship. You know, I'm sitting here listening to you talk about it's not content, it's context. And I want to say, That's what we do at a great art and design college, is we create context. I think there is also content, but we create context for people to thrive. We create context for people to know themselves. We create context for people to find voice, to find expression, to dig deep somewhere, to find that come to life. But it's not, again, it's not either or, you know, are we going to be about content or context? Mm, mm. It's about what is primary and what is secondary. And that, then you're inclusive of content, you know, because we have right. anger management right. classes too, but it's secondary to the environment and the culture and the community here, way secondary. Right. So we would never say, oh, this has no value. Getting a GED has no value. Of course it does. Or therapy or whatever services we deliver. But all of it is uh, secondary. I came into Homeboy Industries as a trainee into the 18-month program. The 18-month program entails a lot of things. Um, basically, I'll go to some classes and then I'll do some work around or inside the building. 
and the the full-time status now it allows you to work at one of the establishments that homeboy has um it's like a three two split you'll work like three days at a job and then you'll have two days full-time right here at homeboy industries to work on yourself because homeboys is not only about working on you know just the outside or getting you a job or helping you with that but it's mainly about the inside you know working on your inside so you come in at 8 30 and you leave at 4 4 30 in the afternoon you have uh, many options to go to you can work for the homeboy cafe you can work for uh, the bakery you could get into the recycling you can do silk screening or if you want to learn a trade they have solar paneling welding truck driving and i figured you know solar paneling is the future the solar energy so i wanted to go ahead and dive into that and that's just one of the many things that homeboy has to provide and aside from that you know the working on yourself is what's really important about homeboys because i mean i'm a hard case i'm a hard nut to crack so to speak you know what i mean and you know i'm you know i'm real hard-headed and stubborn and i bumped heads with everybody right here basically but you know, it's, 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 they know where I'm coming from and I know where they're coming from. It's just like, you know, it's a working process because the way I look at it is, is like, again, there ain't nowhere in the world that's going to do all this for you and have all this for you. All you got to do is just apply yourself. You know, I think, you know, when you apply yourself in the commitment, that's what's going to make you go far. Cause there's a lot of people, you know, what's great about homeboys is there's a lot of people that, you know, there are a lot of youngsters, right. That are you know, not really fully committed, and you see some of them go, and you see them come back, and you see them go, and you see them come back. But just the fact that something inside of them is driving them to come back, that's where I see the little magic, or whatever you want to call it. It's like, what is it that's driving you to come back, to come back after you've messed up and messed up and messed up? You know what I mean? And I think that's what makes this place so vital. It's that little bit of commitment. Another interesting overlap, too, is, you know, when you were talking earlier about it's not to give service because that's about you, you know, raises the question of any kind of creative enterprise of who are you making the work for? Are you making the work for a client? Are you making the piece for yourself? What is the project about fundamentally? And I think it's a really beautiful way to think about that and the kind of way you express it, too, for the kind of work you do. I would say if it's about you, then you're cutting off access to joy. But if it's about somebody other than you, then you've opened a path to joy. And joy is the whole thing. It's all about joy. It's not grim duty. It's not how can we sacrifice and in the spiritual realm, you know, of sort of my joy, yours, your joy complete. That's why you bother to kind of achieve some kind of exquisite mutuality because that's where the joy is. That's why you go to the margins with the poor and the voiceless and the powerless. You go there because that's where the joy is. Right, but mutuality is also about engagement, right? It's about a relationship. It's about coming right. together, right? And I think creative work is similar. I think when you write something, when you create some sort of artistic piece, that you are in relationship with the observer, with the reader, and there's something that happens in the case of a book, not so much on the page or with the reader, but somewhere in that space between. And there is engagement, and there is a kind of stimulation of imagination, and there is a mutuality there's and a connection, connection. that happens yeah. in a creative enterprise yeah. and when people experience the creative world. Yeah. And it touches them, too, yeah. when it's good. Which I, Wouldn't you say this is true of the creative endeavor, that, you know, the E.M. Forster thing, only connect, mm -hmm. you know? Because you, you don't want to have a painting or a piece of sculpture or something that doesn't connect. The whole point is to connect. Right. 
Now you can quibble about what does connection mean, but that's the goal, only connect. I mean, it, it, those are just two essential words about you know what we're meant to be engaged in. Right, or to engage in a way that it stirs something in you, it brings something of you to the fore, or brings you back to yourself. And, to why, use and your why is that really. important? Because I think that's how you move toward the spacious and the expansive, and you can put any word you want on that, I would say God or divine, that you're being invited to the more inclusive thing, to the wideness of it, mm-hmm. you know? That's what you hope for. And again, why, do you, why would you even hope for that? Because that's where the joy is. Reminds me of that beautiful Rilke poem, I, I live my life in widening circles. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think Einstein talked about, you know, the widening circle. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that's where we want to be. That's what art wants to do. That's what Homeboy wants to do. You know, I always say Homeboy is the front porch of the world that we all long for. You look at it and it's like a touchstone. You go, oh, okay. Enemies, rivals, you know, African American, Latino, sisters, brothers. We want to be what the world is invited to ultimately become, which is a community of kinship. So that's why I, I less people always ask me about, you know, franchising and, right. and getting this all over the world. And though we have our global homeboy network that has, you know, 147 programs modeled on homeboy in the U.S. and 16 outside the country. But it's not part of our DNA here to say, let's become the McDonald's of gang intervention programs. You know, we, that's not who we are because we don't think we're a solution. We think we're a sign which is even better. So, Father Greg, I, I want to move on to another topic, too, about leadership. And uh, so much of what being engaged in a creative life has taught me about leadership, which breaks apart the whole notion of the great visionary leader and a kind of follow-the-leader model to something very different about creating a space for people to thrive, a place where people need to go into uncertainty, because ultimately I think that's the most creative space, is having the courage to go into the unknown, having the courage to go into a place of uncertainty, to discover, to make, to create, so that you know what it is. And I'm really interested from your experience here, and from your whole way of thinking, how you think about leadership, and and do you think about it that way? Because it seems to me creating a space for people to thrive is a beautiful description of the kind of thing that you've built here. Yeah, you know, people ask that question at different times and in different ways. You know, succession plan around here was a a thing that came up a lot 15 years ago. But I wouldn't say it's come up very much in the last 10 years. Because once you come in here, you go, oh, okay. I don't need to ask the question about succession plan. Because you've created a space. You haven't established yourself as the although people presume indispensable element because i you know i've been here from from the beginning and that kind of thing but you know i was at chautauqua institute which you know i had six homies three homegirls and three homeboys and they would give these little lunchtime packed sessions they'd pack these houses people were out into the streets and and so i snuck in and i was listening to the q a And some woman got up, didn't know I was in the room because it was just packed and I was hiding in the back. And she said to the to the panel of six gang members, well, Father Greg's not going to live forever. He's going to die, you know, which was kind of shocking to them that she would be so rude. That's what they thought. (laughs) And then uh, so who's going to run the place? You know, like, how are you guys going to survive after he's gone? And one guy got up and uh, he points to the other five and he goes, we all have keys to the place. Hmm. 
And that was it. Big round of applause. In fact, if you see in the front of my desk all those keys mm. that came from, I went on a two-month sabbatical and I told that story. So they, they, they this is their Beautiful. commemorate when I yeah. came home, yeah, yeah. all these keys. But that's the way it should be, you know. What have you learned about leadership from this work? You know, I think it's important not to lead. More and more in my advanced age, I, I, I just think everything is about how do you turn that on its head? And not leading is kind of the way to go. You know, I sort of learned that when I was pastor at Dolores Mission when my Spanish so sucked. And they were used to the priests who were from Mexico, who, who were brilliant and eloquent and articulate. And there was no need for anybody in the parish to ever speak because the priest did. Well, then I got there and I, I shrugged a lot and I threw up my hands and I would say, could you say that again, you know? Because my Spanish wasn't very good. It was right. the greatest gift I ever gave to that community was my terrible Spanish because they had to speak because I couldn't. So we'd have big, you know, meetings with whatever the mayor or the city council and they had to get up and speak and that was absolutely foreign. So the, the key to the leadership there was my inability slash unwillingness to lead, you know, which forced them to do it. Right. It's not a kind of rigid, focused, I've got the vision, you follow me, so much as it is, you thrive. This is about you, or this is about us in relationship. This is about a space for something to happen. Yeah. I remember we had a waitress, uh, Nellie, at the cafe, and somebody came in and ordered nopales with eggs. And she looked at him, and she goes, we have that? You know, she didn't even know. Right. It's on the menu, and he's ordering it. But I always, that's always my, how my experience at the moment at Homeboy. I go, we have that? We do that here? <laughs> you know, and it's... Um, that's great. And they have to go, yeah, we do that here. Oh, that's okay, great. I'm just the founder. You know, I meant to ask you this question earlier. The repeated tropes of the American dream, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps or you can achieve anything you want if you just apply yourself. Where does that go here? I mean, how can you say that to the human beings who are part of this community? Does it make any well, sense to them Well, Martin Luther King always thought it was an insult to tell people who don't have boots uh, to pull yeah, themselves exactly. up by the yeah. bootstraps. And, and that's kind of the truth here, too. People get weird about being victims. I don't see myself as a victim, and I go... I don't know, you know, and, and I, they, you know, I take full responsibility. This is what happens in prison. They won't release you until you can say to a board, I take full responsibility for stuff. Yeah, I get it. It's a little simple. It's a little unsophisticated. I once was invited to the Youth Authority on Victims Awareness Day to speak to a thousand guys who are locked up at the Youth Authority, which means young and, and very serious crimes. And the woman, just before I went to walk out, she says, whatever you do, don't imply that they're victims. And I knew, of course, that there wasn't a single person in that audience of all the inmates who wasn't completely and totally a victim. Mm. Every single one. So now we know things like the ACE study, the adverse um, childhood. childhood experiences, you know. And so it's a scale of 10, you know, and it's parents who were mentally ill or alcohol, drugs, violence, sexual abuse, physical abuse. And I, you know, I can look at my life growing up in this city and I can't come up with one thing, not one of the 10. And everyone who walks through these doors is a nine or a 10. I say or a 10 because 
the sexual abuse part is extremely hard for right. for male gang members to ever acknowledge. They they eventually do, but it's like nine to ten. So you want to go, okay, what are we talking about when we say don't imply that any of these folks are victims? Or they're all victims. They've all been victimized, traumatized, and hugely damaged. And not all choices are created e equal. And so that stuff is important to underscore, I think. To put you on the spot, to speak to me as an educator, yes, I educate creative people or I'm involved in the education of creative people. I don't personally necessarily do it. I try to create the space for it to happen. Is there a guidance you would give me in the spirit of what you talk about with Homeboy Industries? Is there guidance you would give me about how to help open hearts, about how to help people stand with each other, about how to bring their humanity back to themselves in a way that would allow them to be the best creative people and the best human beings they could possibly I, be? I think the answer always is it's always relational. Healing is relational. And what everybody, in any kind of any kind of venture, educational or otherwise, it's how do you lead people into relational wholeness? So, you know, somehow on some level, and I don't know the specifics of this exactly, it feels more valuable for your students to know you than to know what you know. And so there's something in that where we resist that because we want to keep it service provider, service recipient. We want the distance. I'm the teacher, you're the student, I'm going to impart. But that's the difference between content and context and that, that if your environment is such that people can be in relationship with each other. Why do these folks show up every day? Is it the paycheck? Well, I'm not so sure. It's community. It's the community. There's something right. absolutely compelling by the fact that they're in relationship, See, which, which leads us to, you know, we, we take Thanksgiving off and the Friday following, and, and this happens every year, that they'll complain, why are we doing that? I said, well, it's Thanksgiving. <laughs> Yeah, and, wow. and, and they don't get it because wow. um, it, they don't have a place to go, and this is it. That's, this is why we started Thanksgiving here. Every Thanksgiving, we have the most monumental feed. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of folks come because we're kind of it, and it's all relational. And, you know, when we had to lay off 300 people because we didn't have any money, they were all here the very next day right. and shouting, we would come here whether you paid us or not, you know. Right. So the resonance of that for uh, just an educational environment goes so deep for me, really. The learning comes from community. The learning comes from relationship. From relationship. Right. Which is why, interestingly, online learning is such a challenge, I think. Yeah. To get celebrated as, oh, you can do it in your pajamas at 2 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. But you're alone. Yeah. And there's no context and there's no engagement. There's no community. Not in the same way, anyway. But there, even to reduce it to maybe a silly example, but it's like with parenting, you know, they'll, they'll, or with kids, raising kids, you'll say, well, your kid may not remember what you said to him, but he'll never forget how you made him feel. Well, then your educational environment, they may not remember everything you said about art history or design or whatever, but I think your students won't ever forget how you made them feel. And I think that's essential. A couple of things before we conclude. One is, I have a background in Shakespeare, and I just want to tell you, as I was sort of preparing for this and reading your books and thinking about what you do, there are three very specific quotes that came to mind that I'll, I'll share with you. The first one is Juliet, just before she takes the poison, she says, love, give me strength, which is 
a line that seems to me resonant for everything you do. Mm -hmm. The second profoundly is Lear on the Heath confronting poor Tom the beggar who himself is in disguise from Edgar and saying, unaccommodated man is nothing but a poor bare-forked animal as thou art, that there is kinship of all humanity in that moment for Lear. And the third, which I think is deeply resonant for what you do, is Hamlet, after going through all of his machinations and trying to figure out and his obsessions with Claudius and all the rest of it, comes to a point where he gives that beautiful speech of there's a special providence in the fall of the sparrow. And the last line of that speech is, readiness is all. And it seems to me that that's a beautiful way to describe what happens here and what you're looking for and what you're trying to create, a kind of readiness. Not to go through all the machinations, should I do it this way, should I do it that way, but can I create a space for a certain level of readiness so that the people who participate in this community can thrive? Yeah, it's funny that you would say that because I have Lear on my mind because I was reading, uh, I don't think I have it. Okay, here it is. This is, I mean, this is just the Lear thing. We'll take upon us the mystery of things as if we were God's spies. Do you remember that part? I do. Yeah. I love that. And that's kind of what Homeboy does. It sort of takes upon us the mystery of things, feeling quite privileged to be God's spies. Hmm. Anyway, I, I, I'm sort of fascinated by Lear at the moment. How many chances can you give somebody, really? You know what I mean? Before it's like, you know, I'm done with them. You know what I mean? And I understand that, but at the same time, too, you know, sometimes that person does need all those many, many chances to get it right. And that's the thing that's so special about Father Greg Boyle. He don't turn nobody down, man. He doesn't, he doesn't give up on nobody. You know what I mean? I mean, he's not a dumb man. He's a very smart man. He knows when somebody's just coming trying to work the system. He knows that. He sees that. But you know what? It's not his place to judge that. He still welcomes that. You know what I mean? Because he feels that at the end of the day, man, look, nobody else was there for you. I'm going to try to be there for you. And I think that's the magic, the specialness that's with homeboys. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, not everybody has that. Not everybody can carry that torch. You know what I mean? So... Nobody gets kicked out of homeboys. Nobody gets turned away from homeboys because, you know, a lot of us, we don't have that no more. You know what I mean? We're just written off and, and it is what it is. So finally, can I ask you if you could offer a blessing to the students and to the Art Center community? Sure. Why not? Uh, may uh, the God who loves us without measure and without regret bless all of you and fill you with the deepest uh, anchored gratitude for making you the way God did. Uh, may you know that truth and inhabit that truth of who you are. Oh, nobly born, remember who you really are uh, so that you can uh, put first things recognizably first and live as though the truth were true. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Sure. Thank you. This is our final episode of the season, a season that explored several fascinating elements of the creative process. We are happy you joined us and we would love to hear from you. What discussions in this season moved you the most or got you thinking about new ways to approach your creative endeavors? Are you starting something new, stuck in the middle of a project or experiencing writer's block? Or are you wrapping something up and getting ready to present? Whatever it is, we want to hear about it. As we start planning for the next season, share with us, won't you? You can reach us at change.lab at artcenter.edu. And one final request before we go, would you head over to iTunes, 
find this podcast, Change Lab, and leave us a review. It helps us grow, and it helps listeners find us. Thank you. Until next time. Change Lab is produced and recorded at Art Center College of Design. I'd like to extend a special thanks to our small but mighty production staff, producer Christine Spines, co-producer Luis Silva, editor Emily Van Bergen, and post-production supervisor and production consultant Christopher Olin.